Okay, so we have been talking about the greatness of God, and I, I wanted to kind of begin with just uh, an emphasis. You know, it's been a couple of weeks uh, since I was here, and, um, you know, I want to just, last time we met, there was some, some really robust discussion about some of God's attributes, and I just kind of want to take a moment to reset and, and remind us of, of what the purpose of this study is. You know, this is really pretty basic stuff. Theology 101, you know, who is God? You know, uh, you know we're, we're, we're searching the scriptures, which as you've heard me say many times is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. It's his self-revelation to mankind. Um, and, and, you know, it, he tells us everything he wants us to know about himself. So in this study, I thought it would be helpful to search the scriptures and document what he says about himself. Um, how does he describe himself? Who is he? Uh, we've talked a lot in recent months uh, here at Plum Creek and, and also in other avenues of our ministry with Not By Works Ministries about uh, the enemy and all of that he's trying to do to take over this world and usher in the one world system and all of the things that uh, Satan and his human accomplices are working on. Uh, and it just occurred to me as we just, as I chose this topic for our next series uh, that we need to, you know, think about who God is and be reminded that he's all powerful, that he's in charge, that he's sovereign, that he wins in the end, and he's our incredible personal savior. But, you know, as we study this, and I'm going to show you a couple of verses tonight that I think we've looked at a couple of them before, but I'm going to show you some new ones that just remind us that it's okay if we don't comprehend everything that God reveals to us about himself we don't have the mind of God but that doesn't mean we shouldn't you know study it and accept it and and let God say what he says if God says he's omnipresent he's omnipresent I don't know how that works I don't know how God can be omnipresent everywhere present at the same time if God says he's eternal uh, without beginning and without end I, I, I don't know how that works but we take it on faith I don't know how it works when God says he's infinite um uh, but, you know, he, he says that. So uh, I just want us to remember that, you know, as we get into the Word and get to know God and rehearse these passages that we're looking at, you'll, you'll notice that a lot of these slides, the first three weeks, are Scripture references. You know, I'm not, this isn't anything profound. I'm not cleverly putting together news clips and charts and diagrams and stuff like I love to do. I'm just trying to saturate us in the Word of God. And Yesterday and today, as I was kind of putting in some new uh, attributes of God that we're going to look at, hopefully tonight, we may not get to all of them, but I just am overwhelmed at times reading what the Word of God says about Himself. So the greatness of God, what we're doing is looking at the attributes of God, which as we said, are those distinguishing characteristics of God's divine nature that are the essence of God, the essence of who He is. And so we looked at several passages in the first week. I'm just going to show you one of them for the sake of review, but that talks about the greatness of God. For example, 1 Chronicles 29:11, "Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty, for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted uh, as head over all." So I'm going to fly through the review of the first four attributes that we looked at. But I want to add a couple of little comments along the way. So we started out by talking about God is eternal, meaning he's without beginning, without end. Uh, he is free from the succession of time. There never will be a time when God did not, never was a time when God did not exist, never will be a time when he does not exist. Uh, and so we looked at several proof texts for that. Uh, for example, uh, Job's uh, friend, Elihu, was speaking here and he said, Behold, God is great and we, we do not know him, nor can the number of his years be discovered. Uh, or Moses in the one psalm that he wrote, Psalm 90. He said, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Again, be, without beginning and without end. He created time. He spoke the world into existence and created time. Another passage that I uh, came across in, just in reviewing this, I don't think we talked about before, but uh, this great benediction here in First Timothy, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise be honor and glory forever and ever amen anybody remember the little chorus we used to sing or at least when i was a kid we would sing it i bet if the rosses were here they would remember anybody remember that yeah. can you sing it now to the king eternal, eternal 
immortal, invisible, the only wise God. And then you have the echo, the only wise God, be honor and glory and uh, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Be honor and glory forever. Good. Well, I don't feel, I don't feel like I'm alone up here. I've got a kindred spirit. That's good. So this idea of eternality led us into the discussion of divine timelessness and um, the odd temporal nature of God. And so I did my best to try to describe that in terms of the, the fact that, you know, God, the eternal God exists outside the bubble of the created universe, that we function in time, space, and matter. God is outside of that. And that, I know, engendered some discussion, and, and there were some, uh, you know, terms that we use that are, you know, a little bit sticky wickets, and we, it's, it's really hard to describe something that is beyond our comprehension in ways that we can understand. And so that's why I wanted to mention uh, these you know, additional verses that we've talked about uh, previously. Uh, in Romans, this is a foundational passage, we read, as Paul is trying in the context to describe God's sovereignty with man's free choice and reconcile those two. So another sort of, humanly speaking, irreconcilable truths. We call those biblical antinomies. Um, and Paul says, you know, how unsearchable, oh, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his uh, judgments and his ways past finding out. And so it's okay if we struggle to define some of the things that God says about himself because you know, his ways are not our ways. His ways are unsearchable. And we know things in terms of a linear concept of time. God is outside of time. And we, that's an important thing to understand for him, about him. In this Davidic psalm, you know, King David writes, um, and I know that's a lot of text on the screen, more than I would usually put up, but I want to capture the context. He says, Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. I want you to connect here the personal application and the praise that this engenders in David as he thinks about the fact that God is, you know, eternal. He says, uh, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. We're going to come back to this verse again in a little while. You have hedged me from behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. So rather than causing us to wring our hands trying to figure out God's eternality, which I think is kind of where we kind of drifted into this explanation. You know, I'm a teacher. I like to be able to explain things so that people can understand it. And I feel like I failed when I don't. But I think probably what we, we should, the way we should come at this is just by saying, look, this knowledge is, is so high that I cannot attain it, but it's also wonderful for me. One, because it means that God is not subject to time. God is above time. And then one that Fred pointed out to me uh, that I am you know, well acquainted with, but just didn't think about it in the context of our discussion, is uh, when Moses was giving his speech to the children of Israel just prior to Joshua taking over and this blessing and cursing passages of Deuteronomy you know, uh, 28 to 30. In chapter 29, verse 29, he says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Uh, so God has clearly explained to us everything he wants us to know and do. And then he says some things about himself that we take and understand and accept as part of his attributes, of the essence of who our you know, timeless creator is. And we don't have to understand them all. Uh, Chuck Swindoll commenting on this verse says this God keeps some knowledge to himself there are people who will tell you that they have access to this special knowledge claiming that God has given them special revelation of his teaching which is not accurate but God never contradicts himself the things that he holds in secret are not a different truth that will erase the things we now know they are simply things that only the Lord in his infinite wisdom and power can know and I think that's the emphasis there. Can know. Everything that is essential for life has already been stated in God's Word. We do not have need of any extra revelation. It is enough to be accountable to all that He has 
already told us within the pages of this book, meaning uh, the Bible. So that was God's eternality. And then we looked at God's self-existence, that God is dependent upon no one or nothing else. He is independent in His being, whereas everything else in the created universe is dependent on something. Uh, but He is not. You know, We're dependent on warmth and shelter and food and uh, you know, all of those things. God is self-existent. Uh, John 5, uh, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. So God is self-existent. And then we looked at God is holy, that He's set apart from all that is impure or unclean, that He's in a class by Himself. Um, and, uh, and, and we saw, for example, this anonymous psalmist in Psalm 99 repeatedly gives this refrain, He is holy, He is holy, the Lord God is holy. Or Isaiah the prophet said, To whom then will you liken me? This is Yahweh, God, the creator of the universe, speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Or Isaiah's a prophetic calling. Uh, when the angels cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So God is holy. Uh, God is immutable, meaning He is devoid of all change. A change always requires either improvement or deterioration. God is absolute perfection, so neither is possible for Him. And He said through the prophet Malachi, I am the Lord, I do not change. And then we left off with God is infinite. Uh, God is infinite. He is without boundaries or limits. He's not limited by His creation. He's not limited by time, space, or matter. Uh, psalm 147, an anonymous psalm here, he says, uh, He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Literally, the word infinite in Hebrew there means without limit. Without limit. Uh, in First Kings, as Solomon is uh, giving his prayer of dedication at the temple, uh, he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. God is infinite. Uh, or Acts 17, when Paul is preaching his sermon at Mars Hill. He says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Uh, the prophet Isaiah says, Heaven is my throne and earth is is my footstool. That's a, a figure of speech, going back to our study of how to read and understand the Bible, called merism, where you use two opposites to imply everything. And he's talking about heaven and earth. And, you know, God is not just confined to heaven or earth. He is everywhere. Uh, where is the house that you will build for me? And where is the place of my rest? Uh, and this was something that the Jewish people really you know, misunderstood through the centuries. And by the time you got to the first century, they had uh, completely misapplied the presence of the Lord and made it all about icons and the temple and the inner court and the outer court and all of these traditional rituals and so forth. And many people do the same thing today. Um, but we need to understand that, you know, God is infinite. And so what that means is that nothing can constrain him. The things that constrain or confound us are no problem for an infinite God. In fact, all of our constraints somehow in the timeless realm of eternity are part of His created plan. I don't know how that works, but that's the fact. God's infiniteness and His eternality, which we talked about right before this, are closely related. Infiniteness deals more with space whereas eternality deals more with time. So that's why you see some crossover there in the verses that we look at. Um, by the way, we're going to look at, in a few minutes, God's omnipresence, which is closely related to infiniteness, and I'll say this again when we get there, but omnipresence relates more to His interaction with us, that we cannot run from His presence. He's always there. He's available to us in the valley of the shadow of death or on the mountaintop. That's omnipresence. Infiniteness deals more with the essence of his being. That that you know he is he's not in everything, that's pantheism, but he is everywhere uh, you know infinite. Nothing can contain him or constrain him. So uh, since infiniteness I think was new, let me pause and see if you have any questions or comments about anything we've talked about in these first five um, 
attributes of God. And this is where you can hold his hand down. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, seriously, any, any thought or comment or question about anything we've talked about? So we're getting we're gonna move into the omnis, right? Who can name the three omnis? Very good. There you go. And uh, and these are more we can relate to. So these first uh, four, no, first five, uh, were, you know, a little bit. Uh, what's the word? I don't want to demean our, our Lord, but they're they're just more. They're they're. Ethereal. They're they're not something we can. What's the word? Out there. Yeah, they're out there. They're they're they. But God tells us this, and we we want to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. And if you're reading cover to cover, and you're making a list of all the things that God says, I am this. That that's them. And I think at this, if we stopped here, we would probably think of God as as powerful, even though we we're going to talk about omnipotence. But because he's he is out there. We would think of him as distant. We would think of him as not us, you know, holy, separated. But I don't think we would yet appreciate how approachable he is, how personal he is. So that's why we want to go through the whole, the whole uh, series. So, um, and I don't know how many attributes we're going to, you know, come up with, but um, we're going to move on to number six now, which is omnipotence. God is omnipotent. Omni meaning all, potent meaning powerful. So God is all powerful and able to do anything consistent with his very nature. He can't violate his nature, so he can't use his omnipotence to do something that is contrary to what he's already said about himself. Um, because God is perfect. He's not inconsistent. Um, God does not exercise his power randomly, but according to his will. Um, the word Almighty in our English Bibles, there's a few different Hebrew and Greek words for that, but it's only ever used in from Genesis to Revelation of God. So Satan's not Almighty. His demons are not Almighty. Earthly kings and powerful leaders are not Almighty. There's one Almighty, and that's the God we serve. And so a classic passage here would be uh, when uh, God is reaffirming the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham, remember the Abrahamic covenant was unconditionally given in chapter 12, and then it's reaffirmed several times throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. This is one of those, and it's when uh, Abraham was also instructed to have the sign of circumcision in Genesis 17. But notice, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Who knows what uh, the Hebrew there is for Almighty God? El Shaddai. And I remember we sang that, or Kim actually sang that at the, at the funeral. That's a beautiful phrase. El Shaddai, God Almighty, you know. And um, uh, I, I just love that, that phrase, but it's Almighty God. Um, I had not heard that song in a long time. And I went home and it conjured up memories. And I told Wendy, I guess I can tell the story. It has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about, but... It's an interesting story. I was sitting in a deer stand uh, in late December, like it might have even been New Year's Eve or December 30th, uh, in Llano, Texas, and uh, just had my headphones in and was listening to a local Christian radio station that I could pick up. And they happened to be counting down that weekend or two or three days that I was there hunting the top uh, Christian songs for the 1980s. If you remember much about Christian music, it really started in about 1980. I mean, there were some 70s, but it wasn't really mainstream, and you didn't start having CCM stations and stuff till 1980. So uh, as I'm sitting there listening, it was El Shaddai was the number one Christian song for all of that decade of the 80s. And, um, and I love that song. But... Uh, Another key verse would be going to the other end of the Bible, Revelation, in conjunction with the second coming of our Lord, which I love this passage, and I love just the, the thought of what, what every created thing, including the demons and uh, Satan and everything, is going to experience when the King of kings and Lord of lords comes back to take the throne that was promised him at the end of the tribulation period and, 
and rule the world in perfect peace and justice and righteousness. And in the in the lead up to that, because uh, the, 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 he comes back in verse 11. So in verse 6, we read, I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thunderings. And what were they saying? Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. I mean, what an in-your-face to Satan who has been striving to, to use his power to take over the world. He's required people to take the mark of the beast, those during the tribulation period. He's, he's rolled out a full-spectrum global surveillance grid. He's just uh, exercised incredible amounts of power, but nothing compared to the omnipotence, the all-powerful God. Uh, King David said in Psalm 62, God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. So, you know, the, the next time you find yourself in an impossible situation, and we see this a lot in the New Testament during the, the earthly ministry of Christ with His own teaching, but don't forget, we serve a God who has the power to move mountains, who has the power to raise the dead. Um, so, that gets us into the application. Because God is omnipotent, He has the power to accomplish what He said He would do. You ever been let down by someone who said they're going to do something and they either didn't do it or couldn't do it? God never has to say, God never has to say, well, I know I said I would do this, but it turns out it's not possible. Because right? yeah. it's always possible with Him. All things are possible. That's yeah. So He's got all the power, but He doesn't Could be. Yeah. But nations like Isaac and Israel, he could have had his way with them at any time, but he chose to use others. Sure. Why? So, yeah, Gary commented, you know, God has all the power, but sometimes he exercises it directly and sometimes he uses intervening uh, groups. So that's that gets down to the, the subject theologically is called determinism. So. Sometimes God hits the cue ball directly with the stick. Sometimes He allows one of the balls on the table to hit another ball, which hits another ball, and then His, his will is accomplished when it goes into the pocket. So uh, He's still all-powerful, but part of being all-powerful is being sovereign. And you know it, His plan is being played out just precisely as He said it would in Scripture. And uh, so, yeah, sometimes He uses, in the case of the nation of Israel, He used other nations to discipline them. He might use weather. He might use cosmic disturbances. He might use uh, natural means. Remember a few months ago in our study of Acts, I forget which chapter it was. It was early on. We talked about the difference between divine intervention and supernatural events. So that's really what you're talking about. A divine intervention is when God, according to His will, fixes something you know, in a way that you know, is is natural. You know, he could cure you using doctors. He could, he could, you know, uh, have use a mechanic to fix your car. Somehow he he intervenes. He he. I think the illustration we used is, you know, some, you know, if you're driving along a street and God knows that a tree is about to fall, and if you keep up at your same pace, it's going to fall right on you and kill you. So he causes the car in front of you to stop, turn on their blinker, and parallel park, which slows you down, and you're all frustrated, thinking. Now I'm going to be delayed, but what you don't know is God was protecting you because that tree fell before you got there. That's divine intervention, whereas supernatural would be if you're driving along and God literally picks you up from the car, levitates it in the air, and goes over the tree that was going to fall on you and lands you on the safety on their side. Supernatural. So I think God can exercise His power in, in several different ways, that's, but He's still powerful. Yeah. Well, there's something I still don't understand. <clears throat> Just one thing. <laughs> so Satan has been defeated Amen. many, many times by the omnipotent, omniscient, uh, all-knowing God. Um, yet he persists, and Satan knows the scriptures, he knows God is all-powerful. Why does he persist? Is his pride that absolutely it's pride and we read about that in you know isaiah and ezekiel 
the description of Lucifer's fall. Uh, so the comment is, what is it that keeps Satan continuing to do what he's doing when he knows that he's already lost the battle? Right? Is that a fair summary of what you said for the recording? So, yeah, I mean, Satan, he's blinded, he's prideful, he's stupid. You know, he's not, he's intelligent. All angels are intelligent uh, because they don't, their minds aren't, they're not physical. So they don't have the constraint. You know, when you get tired and you're physical, physically worn out, it affects the way you think, right? You're not as sharp and so forth. Angels don't have to worry about that. So they're very brilliant beings. But in terms of his wisdom, he's stupid. He might have a lot of knowledge, but he doesn't have a lot of wisdom. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he, it's not that he's been defeated many, many times. I know what you mean by that. In, in little skirmishes, he, can, he continually loses the battle. But he's been defeated once for all. Uh, where? At the cross. And what did Jesus say at the cross? You remember those? He said several things, but the three words? It is finished. It is finished. And that has all kinds of implications, soteriologically, eschatologically, but it it's it's done you know and so you know i want you to go back to genesis 3:15 i commented on this um i don't think it was in here but at, at one of my uh podcasts here in the last few days but in genesis 3:15 this is where god tells satan that you know he's in trouble you know after he after the temptation and the Lord, let's pick it up in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And watch this. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Notice the capital S when it says her seed. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So in other words, Satan is going to inflict wounds on the seed of the woman, but they won't be mortal. Bruise his heel, whereas God will crush his head. And the thing that struck me last week while I was uh, at a conference in Dallas and, and kind of looking at this passage in a fresh light was I always tend to think of, th this is what we call the Protevangelium, Proto-first, Evangelion, uh, Gospel or Good News, the first reference to the gospel that that God is going to solve the the sin predicament that just got created because of Adam and Eve, you know, with the seed of the woman and the seed there of the woman is is uh, is is unique because the seed doesn't come from the woman. You would never speak in Hebrew or any language of that matter of of her seed, and that would have jumped off the page to the Jews reading this scripture. But it's a reference, a veiled reference there to the virgin birth because you know. Christ was not born in through natural means. But what's unique is that the battle here is between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman, or Christ. Not just between Satan and Christ. And I believe that ultimate uh, seed of Satan is the Antichrist. And the final cosmic battle is going to be between the Antichrist, who's indwelt by Satan, so it's really Satan, uh, and Christ himself. And so I don't understand why God doesn't just snap his fingers and put an end to it all, but we, we get a glimpse at some places in Scripture that might show us why. For example, 2 Peter 3 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. If God were to say right now, it's over, and just, which he couldn't do because he would violate his plan, but if he would just say, it's all over, the saved are going to heaven, the lost are going to hell, end of discussion, here comes eternity, I'm destroying the old earth tomorrow. Uh, there would be people that go to hell who might otherwise have believed the gospel. And so his timetable is perfect. We don't know what that is. We know we're getting close to the end. But uh, as far as, you know, why does Satan do this, who knows? I mean, he's, he's self-deceived, which is the worst kind of deception, is to be self-deceived. He really believes he can win this battle. And he's deceived. Remember, Second Timothy three thirteen: evil men and impostors are getting worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So he's deceiving these Luciferian elite. They believe they can accomplish, you know, the singularity and transhumanism and all these things that they're working on. They believe they can control everybody in the world. I just talked about that last night in a uh, podcast. 
So he's just deceived. But you know, we see early on the fact that he will not win. Calvary was the final fatal blow, uh, and and he's just uh, airing out his time. You know, um, you know, uh, was it? No, it wasn't Elon Musk. It was Yuval Noah Harari, who's uh, Klaus Schwab's right-hand man, said recently that uh, God is dead. It's just taking a while to bury the body. Well, what I would counter is Satan is dead. <laughs> it's just taking him a while to figure it out. But he'll know it one day when he gets kept cast into Lake of Fire, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's a great point. Yeah, did you all catch that? So he's saying that it's not necessarily that, you know, from God's perspective, he's just choosing a different, you know, disciplinary tool in his arsenal. It's just he's. It's a learning experience for the children of Israel, and that you know how it must have gotten their attention to to be that God used enemy nations, by the way, to you know uh, discipline them, hold them captive, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, whoever, and yeah, and, it, and then it would strike them that wow, if this is what humans can do, just imagine what God could do. So. Sure. God uses us individually and collectively. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think um, you know we see throughout Scripture plenty of evidences of God's direct intervention in the affairs of mankind. You know, the flood, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, and I don't mean direct intervention the way I described them earlier. I'm talking about where God supernaturally comes down and makes His presence known, and we see that throughout human history. And we're going to see it again after the rapture when, you know, the seal, the trumpet, the bold judgments. You know, these aren't just things that God, God's allowing. These are, these are direct uh, supernatural elements of God. So, no, no, go right ahead. Right. What do you mean by is Satan winning souls? Like in those individual battles that Sure, yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. 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 He's he's uh, the eternal optimist. Um, by the way, I heard a good definition. I can't remember it, but I wrote it down, so I'm going to call it up here of op an optimist. Um, and that is the difference between. An optimist and a pessimist is that a pessimist has more information. <laughs> I like that. I mean, sometimes I get accused of being a pessimist because I understand the world and the way it really works. But uh, ignorance is not always bliss. But yeah, very well said. Um, and I, you know, absolutely. That's our format here is very interactive. So I don't want to. Don't ever hesitate to throw up your hand and ask a question. Yeah. understand why God has visited this upon me. You know, what, what am I supposed to learn? Right. And, and, and that kind of thing. And I came back and I said, you, you 
had a choice to make. You made your choices. Yeah. And this, the co this is the consequences that came out of that. But he goes, well, how do I, how do I know when it's God's hand? And how do I know when it's my hand or Satan's hand? So, yeah. And how was is there a better way to answer that? No, I think you you answered it perfectly well. Um, uh, the the comment is, how do we know when the trials that we're facing are at the hand of God or at the hand of the devil? Because he is out seeking whom he may devour, trying to kill, steal, and destroy. So uh, we talked about this a, a few months ago at, when I talked about the difference between punishment and discipline and the trials of life. So there, I forget what I said the three sources were, but there's multiple sources for trials. A, it could just be the fact that we live in a fallen world under the curse of sin. So sometimes bad things happen to good people. It's not God disciplining you. It's not Satan attacking you. It's just a factor of sometimes you run over a nail and you get a flat tire. Okay, So that's one option. Second option is, could be the consequence of your own choices and behavior. You know, if you uh, are living like the devil, you're going to end up getting a disease or getting sick or getting, you know, car wreck or whatever, you know, you can be the consequences of your own action. But the third option is for believers, remember believers never face punishment, but we do face discipline. You never find in scripture the word punishment used of believers. Um, so once we're a child of God in the family of God, God disciplines us. And so yes, he can be allowing us to go through a season of trial. What was the term your friend used? It wasn't a season, it was, uh, anyway, you said it a second why is God, oh. why is God putting, why is God visiting me? Visiting me, that's what I was thinking of, yeah. Yeah, you know, so you might be visited with these difficulties and trials and heartaches, and, uh, you know, honestly, it can be very difficult to identify where it's coming from, but in those cases, if you don't really know, that's where your faith just has to be in the Lord. Lord, I don't know if this is a spiritual attack from the enemy, I don't know if this is discipline that you're trying to show me something or to learn something or is this just you know an unfortunate circumstance that i'm going to have to trust you through it and but eat those last two either in fact really all three really it comes down to you just have to trust god so your your friend is asking or this young man that you counseled is asking the right questions but he needs to take the next step and and rest in god's goodness you know all the things we're talking about about our god and recognize that he's never out to get us. He's not out there to hurt us. He only wants our best. Remember, his commandments are not burdensome. We talked about that Sunday. Um, so it's a matter of strengthening your faith. No matter what the source of the trial is, the answer is the same. Trust God. And I know that sounds trite, but frankly, that's what the whole Christian life comes down to. We walk by faith and not by sight. Yeah. So in 1 Corinthians 10... 13 where it says he'll never give us more than we can handle more than we can handle right he'll always give us an out yeah. is he speaking to believers A there absolutely yeah uh, there's no temptation such as is common to man but God is uh, there's no temptation given among men that is not common to man but God is faithful and will not allow us I can't remember it. I had it memorized at one time, but it's, that's the general gist of it. God will not allow us to be tempted above that which we are able. So, um, but of course, that depends on our response too. You know, sadly, many people uh, lose the faith. They find themselves so depressed that they give up, which is terrible. Uh, uh, you should never do that. Uh, it's okay to question God, as we see King David do many times, such as Psalm 13. But he always resolves that with, yet will I trust in the Lord. Just like Job. Job asked a lot of questions, but he ended up, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So, uh, unfortunately, you know, when someone does give up, it doesn't mean God gave them more than they can handle. It means that they just chose not to trust God in the midst of it. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, and by the way, I, I saw, maybe you've seen this too, a horrible are you familiar with what's going on up in Canada? You know, they've had uh, euthanasia and doctor-assisted suicide for a long, long time, but they just now passed new laws to where 
in the past you had to have a doctor's uh, uh, diagnosis that you were terminal and going to die within a year or some such length and then you could request to be killed and thousands upon thousands of people took took advantage of that but now they've said you can request it without a doctor's thing if you just feel depressed and discouraged and they actually have commercials uh, that show that that uh, glorify death and encourage people especially young people to take their own lives are you feeling down and depressed just imagine what the other side is like and just with this music in the background and a gal sitting on the beach it's just demonic and that's just another sign of the times uh, Canada's not alone in fact they're a little bit behind the curve some other countries you know have been doing this forever uh, over in uh, the Netherlands I mean if you sprain your ankle you can get killed if you want you know so um, it's it's really sad um, I don't know what made me think of that but uh, you know when we face trials and loneliness like I talked about Sunday um, that's when we got to hang on to the Word of God even more and that's why I, I really want us to own all of these character not characteristics but attributes of, of who God is I think there was a hand over here yeah Gary it's easy to say that a trial yeah sure but you know if you're you know this he said it's easy to say it, a trial can either drive you to despair or drive you to the Lord until you're in the middle of it but that's where our faith has to be strong you know that the church history is is uh, you know replete with uh, people who are shipwrecked for the faith on the sidelines of Christianity because they got away from the Lord they weren't prepared they didn't stay in the word they weren't fellowshipping with other believers they weren't praying they weren't feeding their spiritual life and therefore they were ill-equipped when life throws them a curve and those are the ones who paul talks about uh, uh, in uh, for second timothy 2 12 when he says even if we are faithless god is faithful because he cannot deny himself so even if we get to that point which we should not do but it does happen where we throw up our hands and give up, we're still a child of God. We don't get to heaven because we believe the gospel and keep on believing. You don't have to keep on believing to get to heaven, otherwise you'd never know whether you're going to heaven or not. You couldn't rest in the assurance and the promise of Jesus who said, I give you, present tense, eternal life right now. You have it. You get eternal life when you believe, not when you die. And so Paul says, look, even if you get to the point where you have no faith in me, in God, God will be faithful because he cannot deny himself. So, you know, there are there are safeguards that we can put in place by feeding the Spirit, by spiritual disciplines and, you know, staying in the Word of God and things like that. Um, I was talking to someone just today who was working on a project and, and they're looking at a ton of Scripture and they just commented about how, you know, they went through a really rough time recently, but the fact that they had been so undergirded with Scripture running through their minds all the time in this project, it just it made it you know easier for them. And and so I think the other thing is most believers that are you know genuinely walking with the Lord, you know it's all a lot of times it's three steps forward, two steps back. We're not perfect. We're going to have setbacks. But if we're genuinely really seeking the Lord, then when we face these trials and terrible circumstances. That's when God's grace is poured out. And we, from this side of it, we go, we see other people walking through it. We go, oh, if that happened to me, that would be the end. That would be devastating. I could never handle it. But yet, what we don't understand is that's when God's grace is given out in measure and we're able to handle it. So I think there's a lot of things going on with the, with the trials here, but um, ultimately it comes down to walking by faith. So um, some more applications here. Um, Flip over to 2 Corinthians 13.4. I don't have it on the screen, but I, it came up as an application when I was thinking about this. Our very hope of the resurrection that we will experience at either the rapture or will be glorified at the rapture if we're still living when it happens, is contingent upon the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4, For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by what? The power of God. It's the power of God.
that brought about the resurrection. We also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. So it's the, it's the power of God. Uh, Paul says something similar in see, uh, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 3. Do you remember when Paul is uh, talking about uh, kind of his weaknesses and he says in Philippians 3 verse 7, but th those things that were gained to me, these things I counted loss for Christ. Indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God by faith. Now watch this, that, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering. Uh, so, uh, being conformed to His death, that if by any means I may attain to the resurrection uh, from the dead. Now, the power of the resurrection, when Paul says that I may know the power of the resurrection, he's, he's, he's talking there about just you know, recognizing the ultimate power of God. Well, he understood the fellowship of his suffering, but he says, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I want to know that kind of resurrection power. So I just, I just thought it was interesting. We can talk in terms of power, in terms of moving mountains and healing terminally ill people and those kinds of power, but our very resurrection is, is, uh, is based on that. And then another one that actually our whole eternal life it rests on omnipotence. That's why these attributes of God are so powerful. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, or start out in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Remember, if Christ had not risen, then our faith is vain. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. So he defeated death, hell, and the grave. When he rose from the dead, he has the power then to give us eternal life if we'll trust him for it. But what is, has he begotten us to? A, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, watch this, who are kept by the power of God through faith. So when you had faith and believed the gospel, it's the power of God that saves you. So when you think about omnipotence, think about eternal security. I haven't really made that connection before, but you know, God would not be omnipotent if we could lose our salvation because His power would be impugned. Uh, so let's move on to omnipresence, the second omni that we talked about. Um, God is everywhere present at all times at every point of space with His whole being. It's not like there's a little bit of God over here and a little bit of God over here and a little bit of God over there. God is everywhere present. There's no escaping His presence. Um, again, omnipresence emphasizes God's you know, interpersonal presence everywhere. We can't hide from Him. Infiniteness, that we talked about a moment ago, emphasizes His transcendence of space. Um, so, uh, let's look at some key passages. Um, Really, the, the, the one that comes to mind is, again, David's psalm, Psalm 139. I think we've talked about this before, but verses 1 through 6. Where can I go from your spirit, David said, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, literally Sheol or the grave, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me. In other words, surely I can go into a dark room and God won't see me there. He says, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide me from you. Uh, but the night shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you, God. So basically, David is is asking the question, is there any place that I can escape from the presence of God? And his answer is a resounding no. Uh, his omnipresence is unlimited by space. And it's unlimited uh, by darkness or anything else. So what does that mean for us? Well, God's omnipresence should be, on the one hand, a warning for unbelievers who think they can continue 
to sin and rebel against God and have no consequence. That's Satan's big lie, by the way. Remember his big lie? In the day you eat, the, God said, in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Satan said, you will not surely die. Direct lie. Satan said to Adam, if you can sin, you can disobey God and get away with it. There won't be any consequence. And that's really where we are 6,000 years later in this Luciferian conspiracy as Satan is trying to tell everyone and convince everyone there are no consequences for anything. You can marry who you want. You can have sex with who you want. You can be whatever gender you want. You can cheat, lie, steal, whatever. And, you know, there's no consequence. Um, so his omnipresence should, should be a huge warning that God is uh, there. God is watching. But it should be a great comfort to believers. Because, you know, wh where can we go from his presence? No matter what trial we're... I mean, I think about the, the horrific stories of, you know, prisoners of war or missionaries that have been captured and tortured or as I dedicated my volume two of Spirit of the Antichrist to, all of the victims of the Luciferian elite through the centuries who have been tortured and satanically ritualized and murdered. Um, you know, in those moments when you're in solitary confinement or no one, or you feel alone, you're never alone. God is there. God is there. Yeah, Justin. Uh, or Jonah. He tried to find a place God could. Yes, he did, Jonah. He tried to find a place where God couldn't, couldn't run, but uh, Tarshish uh, was on God's map. And uh, so he said, I've got other plans. And uh, he ended up uh, in the belly of a great fish, right? Yeah. Because God is omnipresent, uh, and because we have God the Holy Spirit indwelling within us the moment you've placed your faith in Christ, then another application that comes to my mind is the ground on which we walk is holy ground. You know, our bodies are the temple of God. And uh, that's a pretty sobering thought. You know, uh, oh, be careful, little feet, where you go, right? So, um, and then um, we need to remember in, in terms of our relationship with God. And again, that's why I just love rehearsing these attributes, some of which I haven't really focused on for years. Uh, we do not go where God is. He is where we are. We do not go where God is. He is where we are. Sometimes we think, you know, i got to go to church, or i got to go to the confessional booth, or I've got to go to some place. No, God's already there. Now, we see a pattern in Scripture where sometimes it's helpful to get alone, to, to get away, to go to a you know place where you can really get on your knees and pray before the Lord and be alone with the Lord. As long as you understand that you know, you don't have to do that. You can pray while you're driving, right? You know, uh, I often pray while I'm driving. My wife says she does some of her best praying while I'm driving too. But, uh, <laughs> you know, you can pray anywhere, right? I, those of you that laughed haven't heard me say that before. Those of you that have been here a while, I've probably used that joke before. Or at least my kids tell me I have. But, uh, so these are just some applications about God's omnipresence. Let's at least start the last one, or the last of these, kind of this trifecta. And that is God is omniscient. God is omniscient. So God possesses absolute knowledge of all things, both actual and potential. See, there's some direct uh, uh, heretical uh, teachings out there that suggest God only knows certain things, or He can only know what's knowable, or things that haven't happened yet He can't know. In other words, they think God is just a good prognosticator. He's a good predictor. And he knows you so well that he can predict what you're going to do, but he doesn't know what you're going to do. Right? But that's false. That's heretical. Um, events that are future from our perspective are an eternal present to God. I purposely changed that from the other word, hoping it would slip through there. I literally did. I, I had my notes and I thought, ah, I'm not even going to say that. But... Uh, you know, God is omniscient. He knows everything, and He knows everything equally well and perfectly well. Uh, it's impossible for God to learn. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, God's knowledge is intuitive. It's eternal. It's immediate. It's not based on observation or reason. 
God doesn't have to study his works to know them. He already knows them. He's omniscient. When James was speaking at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, he said, Known to God from eternity are all his works. I don't know how to say that any other way than that from God's eternal perspective it happened all at once. Even though that's a puzzling phrase for us, how can he know works that haven't happened yet unless from his perspective they've already happened? Uh, this anonymous psalmist said, uh, I think we looked at this earlier on, when we were talking about his infiniteness, you know, his understanding is infinite. So not only is he infinite, but his understanding is infinite. Back to David in Psalm 139, the first six verses. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. Another merism, meaning everything about me. When you see two opposites like that, it's saying everything. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my eyes. You ever do something and you go, why did I do that? God never wonders why you did that. <laughs> he knows exactly why you stopped there. You know, sometimes I'll be so lost in my thoughts. This happens more times than it really should. I'll actually miss the turn going to where I'm going or where my house is even. I'm on autopilot just thinking and my mind's going. And I, I did this the other day bringing uh, Abby home from school. She goes, uh, Dad, wasn't that our turn? I go, oh, yeah. And I had to circle back around and come in a different way. Uh, but God never makes those mistakes, right? Uh, he says, you are acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. This is what we looked at earlier. It is high and I cannot attain it. Uh, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, remember uh, he was criticizing the self-righteous Jewish Pharisees and scribes and for their high and mighty self-righteousness. And he says, don't be like them because they pray with repetition. They just come in and they say these same prayers over and over again, say them loudly uh, uh, you know, announce it with trumpets, trying to get attention. He says, don't be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. Why? Because He's omniscient. By the way, then He goes on to say, so in this manner you should pray. And then He gives this sample prayer, just an illustration type prayer that had never been heard before. He's just saying, pray something like this, you know, say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And He goes on. And even though in the context, Jesus specifically said, when you pray, don't be repetitious and say the same things again and again. The church early on took that sample prayer and sort of, you know, made it a mechanical formulaic thing that a lot of churches say week after week after week. And I don't want to be too harsh because, I mean, they're quoting scripture. So I guess it's OK to quote scripture, but there's nothing, you know, formulaic about the Lord's Prayer. It was just a sample pattern or template for us to use when we pray. Uh, and, and we certainly shouldn't be repeating it all over the, the, the place, thinking that somehow that's the right way to pray. Uh, Ezekiel uh, is, is such an amazing prophet. Uh, it's a very easy book to outline. It has a lot of eschatology in it. The first three chapters, Ezekiel is recounting his calling and his prophetic uh, commission. And then uh, chapters 4 to 24, that whole section, are uh, Ezekiel's oracles from God against Judah and Jerusalem for their sin. So this verse comes right in the middle of that. He goes on in chapters 25 to 32 to give his uh, oracles of judgment against other nations. And then chapters 33 to 48, a beautiful section, are giving blessings in the future for Israel, such as the temple. But notice what he says here in the midst of that second section. Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, Speak, thus says the Lord, thus you have said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. Again, God is omnipresent. Or Hebrews 4. There, This is when uh, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 is talking about how those first century Jewish believers, they were Christians, needed to be diligent, to be faithful, to enter the rest, the the rewards that God has for them if they continue steadfastly with the Lord. And he says, uh, There's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Because God is omniscient, nothing can ever surprise him. Every warning God gives comes 
from an omniscient being. So think about it. We should be extremely sensitive to his warnings, should we not? They're not suggestions or speculations. They're warnings from an omniscient God. He doesn't warn us on the basis of guessing what might happen. He doesn't give speculative advice. He knows. So when we're faced with inexplicable circumstances in life, and we've just talked about this a little bit tonight, we invariably can take refuge and find comfort in the omniscience of God. Not only does He know what's actually happening, He knows what might have happened. Think about that. Let me say it again. Not only does He know what's happening, He knows what might have happened. We're saying, why God? And God's saying, why not? (laughs) Right? If you only knew. Right? Yeah. A lot of these aftergroups, but especially the Omnis, really go back to that hard thing to understand, the eternality yeah. versus the timelessness of, or versus the timetable. Because God is eternal. Yeah. He, it's, already, it's already done. Yep. It's, you know. Yeah, they do go back to eternal. They're all part of His essence. They're all interconnected. You can't take one without the other. Uh, it's a it's a interconnected system of description of who he is, but to me the omnis, I don't know, just the verses that demonstrate his omniscience and his omnipresence are more personal somehow. Yeah. So a lot of what Paul was um, suggesting when Jesus came to Earth, did he still have the omnis? Absolutely. He yeah. Didn't have some of the previous ones we've talked about because he was now in space and time and matter. Well. <laughs> So the comment is so when no. So the question is, when Jesus came to Earth, did He still have these attributes? So um, flip over to to Philippians chapter two, the great kenosis passage. And uh, theologians have talked about this for two thousand years, um, but the fact is, Jesus is God. 100% God. And He's 100% human now, ever since the Incarnation. So, all of these attributes still apply because one of the attributes is God is immutable. He can't change. Right? And Jesus said, I and my Father are one. John 10.30. So, how do you explain this? The, the answer is through this kenosis. Uh, so, look at verse 5, Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it uh, robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of man, being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, and so on and so forth. So this idea of Jesus did not consider his divinity something to be held on to. He didn't consider it raw. It's a bad translation. Who has another translation? Uh, What does NASB say? Verse 6. Yeah. Who who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Right. He emptied himself taking the form of a bond servant yeah. being made into the likeness of Thank you. So the King James is a little rigid there, a little archaic, but did not consider it something to be held on to. And so he emptied himself. That's the Greek word kenosis, to empty himself. The New King James says, made himself of no reputation. And the earth said emptied himself, verse 7. So uh, this, this, is the, this is the idea that Jesus was God, is God, um, yet he chose not to exercise his divinity. So that's all, that's all we're saying. So, but yet he's fully human. So that's how you explain passages like in the Olivet Discourse when he says, no one knows they are, they are not the Son nor the angels, but only the Father. Well, he knows. He wasn't lying. He's just saying, I'm willingly, while I'm on this earth, giving up that information. So, uh, so to close out, um, you know, God always knows what ultimate good and glory will come from events that we cannot understand. Um, 
And also, it should, based on Hebrews 4.13, the one we just looked at, it should invoke reverence for us when we contemplate God's omniscience because we know we're going to stand before Him someday. So I'll leave you with this quote. I'm not a huge A.W. Tozer fan. He's got some very profound things to say, but when it came to the gospel, he, he really messed up. He was not clear. He, he preached a works-based gospel, but his stuff about God and God's holiness is really profound, and so I felt like this quote would, would fit well uh, with omniscience and really be a good way to close out. No, he said, no talebearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to abash us and expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our characters can come to light to turn God away from us. Since he knew us utterly before we knew him and called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. Earthly speaking, boy, we... We all think, man, I, there's stuff I hope you never get a glimpse of what's in my mind, right? Or you'd, if you knew this about me, you'd... But we don't have to worry about that with God. He's omniscient. He's omniscient. All right, well, thanks, uh, thanks for being here tonight. Let me close this in prayer, and then uh, we will be dismissed. Uh, Father, we just thank you for revealing us, yourself to us in your word, and Lord, how we are just overwhelmed, really, at the thought of who you are and how big you are and how small we are. And yet, uh, we are, can boldly approach your throne unashamedly and lay our requests before you. So, Lord, help us to just fall in love with you more and more each day as we contemplate these passages of Scripture. And uh, we pray that if there's anyone listening to this uh, podcast or video or live stream tonight that doesn't know you, that by learning more about you, you would convict them of our need for a Savior. The more we see you in the light of your self-revelation, the more it shines the light on our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And I pray that anyone who doesn't know you would come to faith by trusting in your Son and our Savior as the only one who can forgive sin and provide eternal life. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, 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 You bet. <laughs>